Welcome to this EHIV Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of EHIV Review. We're here today with Dr. Ethel Weld, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Pharmacology, and Molecular Sciences at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine to talk about how using two drug art regimens can improve outcomes in patients with HIV infection. EHIV Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and Vive Healthcare. Learning objectives for this audio program include identify appropriate and inappropriate patients and circumstances for a two-drug regimen as initial therapy, and describe appropriate and inappropriate patients and circumstances for a two-drug regimen for switch or maintenance therapy. Dr. Weld has disclosed that she has no relationship with any product or service relevant to today's discussion. She has, however, indicated that she will be referencing the unlabeled or unapproved use of combination agents currently being investigated in ongoing studies and trials. These include dalutegravir plus cobicistat boosted darunavir, dalutegravir plus lamividine, lamividine plus ritonavir boosted darunavir, and long-acting injectable art with capitegravir long-acting and ropivirine long-acting. Dr. Weld, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you, Bob. Thanks for having me on. In your newsletter issue, Doctor, you analyzed the findings from the recent studies investigating where, when, and whether two-drug art therapy can replace the current three-drug standard of care. Today, I'd like to focus on what that information can mean to clinical practice. So let me ask you to start us out, if you would please, Doctor, with a patient scenario. So we'll start out with a 35-year-old woman with major depressive disorder and creatinine clearance of about 35, so some renal dysfunction who came into the emergency department to be seen because she had a urinary tract infection. She was offered HIV screening and an incidental rapid HIV 1 and 2 antigen antibody test was positive. So this is her initial diagnosis of HIV. She did not know she had HIV before this. She's referred to your clinic to discuss initial regimens. And her HIV-1 RNA-PCR, which was sent in the ED, comes back and is 99,000. Her CD4 count is 430 cells per microliter. And you do have an initial genotype that has resulted, which revealed a wild-type virus with no resistance mutation. She also has some initial testing that was sent by the clinic. She is HLA-B5701 positive. And she states that she's recently been seeing advertising on the bus for dual therapy with dolutegravir plus rilpivirine and wants to avoid drug toxicities if she can do two drugs rather than three and requests this regimen for her initial treatment. A patient naive to HIV therapy wants to start on a two-drug regimen. What's your initial reaction to her request, doctor? So this quite savvy patient who's coming in for initiation of therapy is asking you questions about the relative advantages and disadvantages of a two-drug regimen as compared to a three-drug regimen. And a discussion with her about the pros and cons of these two strategies is entirely appropriate. It's also appropriate in her to screen for the major contraindications to two-drug therapy, which include pregnancy, because this strategy has not been studied in pregnancy, hepatitis B virus, which we'll get into a little bit later, and active tuberculosis. You also should probably discuss with her that dolutegravir plus rilpivirine 
is not licensed for use as initial therapy in people who haven't previously been treated with antiretrovirals. But dolutegravir plus lamivudine, or 3TC, has been found to be highly efficacious in this setting and does have the label for initial treatment of HIV. Given her renal dysfunction with her creatinine clearance around 35, we could consider a single tablet regimen, could talk about dolutegravir, abacavir, and lamivudine, for example. However, she is HLA B5701 positive, which makes abacavir-containing regimens unsafe for her because of the risk of fatal abacavir hypersensitivity. So those are some initial considerations for her. You mentioned major contraindications. Let's talk about hepatitis B. Let's say that you test her for HBV, and that would certainly be appropriate. And her results show that she's got a high hep B viral load and she's positive for the HBV surface antigen. Which two drug regimen, if any, would be appropriate for this patient in these circumstances? So patients with hepatitis B and HIV co-infection who represent up to 20% of patients with HIV globally, 5 to 20% by estimates, they should be treated with two drugs that have activity against both HIV and hepatitis B. So dolutegravir and roltiverine lack anti-hepatitis B virus activity, but two drugs that have strong activity against hepatitis B virus are lamivudine or emtristitabine in the similar class and tenofovir, both tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate, TDF, and tenofovir alafenamide, TAF. So both of those are good options in a complete regimen for hepatitis B and HIV. If you were to treat people with hepatitis B with lamivudine, which is known as 3TC monotherapy, and followed them for a few years, the rates of resistance to lamivudine at about four years of treatment with lamivudine monotherapy are over 90%. So this is not a strategy that is recommended. And because dolutegravir lacks activity against hepatitis B, giving her a two-drug regimen of dolutegravir plus lamivudine would amount to giving her inadequate treatment for her hepatitis B. So it's important to keep in mind hepatitis B and know and understand that the licensed two-drug regimens for HIV have not been extensively studied in individuals with hepatitis B virus. In the U.S., where we have many hepatitis B treatment options available, there's virtually never reason to treat people who have hepatitis B with lumivudine monotherapy. So given those caveats, if she was hepatitis B positive, which agents would be appropriate for her? She should be started on a regimen that contains TAF, so tenofovir alafenamide, and emtricitabine with close monitoring of her renal function. In your description of this patient, you noted she's got a low creatinine clearance, indicating some renal dysfunction. How does kidney disease affect your treatment selection? So generally speaking, one of the advantages to either dolutegravir with rilpivirine or dolutegravir with lamivudine are that they are renal sparing regimens that, generally speaking, can be used in situations of low glomerular filtration rates. So people with renal compromise can use these regimens. However, for her, as mentioned, dolutegravir rilpivirine is not an option for initial therapy, though it may become an option down the line once she has established viral suppression. 
And this is if she can cope with the food requirements and has no issues with gastroesophageal reflux that mandate the use of reflux medications, which cannot be given with ropibrine. Generally speaking, tenofovir-based regimens containing TDF should be avoided in people with her level of renal compromise, but TAF can be given down to a creatinine clearance of 30, so she is safe to receive TAF. Let me ask you to take us through a hypothetical situation. Uh, what if, and again, she's naive to HIV therapy, what if she had a high viral load? Uh, let's say she's 600,000. And on top of that, what if she had the 184V mutation, which confers resistance to lamivudine? So in those circumstances, is dalutegravir plus lamivudine still appropriate? What does the evidence say? So it is true that most of the studies of dalutegravir plus lamivudine excluded patients with viral loads over 500,000 copies per ml, based largely on a concern that these patients might be more likely to develop virologic failure and or resistance on two drug regimens. The Gemini trials, for example, that led to the approval of dalutegravir lamivudine had only 2% of participants with a viral load over 500,000 copies. So this might make you hesitate in her and go with something like a single tablet regimen, which includes dictegravir, TAF, and emtricitabine, for example. And regarding your question about the M184V mutation, which is a ubiquitous mutation in people taking NRTIs with some patchy adherence, and there's a small prevalence of transmitted virus that bears this mutation, which would be her category, given that this is a new diagnosis and she's never received therapy. So that has been looked at. One study has prospectively looked at ritonavir, darunavir, lamivudine, so boosted darunavir plus 3TC, which is considered a two-drug regimen. In patients with the M184V mutation at baseline, that study found that they were no more likely to have virologic failure than participants without the M184V mutation on this regimen, but they did have a slightly increased risk of viral blips, which means a low-level detectable HIV viral load, the clinical significance of which is likely not profound. Another quite small switch study of dalutegravir plus lamivudine found that the M184V was not correlated with virologic failure, except in cases where the time that the individual was suppressed prior to making the switch to a different two-drug maintenance regimen was less than 96 months. So longer periods of suppression prior to switching were not associated with increased failure in those with the M184V. But overall, these were both small studies, and I would wait for more data on the use of these two drug regimens among highly treatment-experienced individuals or individuals that are treatment-naive with resistance-associated mutations. Thank you for that case and discussion, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Ethel Well from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in just a moment. Thank you for listening to this EHIV Review Podcast. If you're unfamiliar with our program, we're a combination newsletter and podcast continuing educational series. We're available online without cost or prerequisite. EHIV Review newsletters are published every other month. Each issue focuses on a specific area of importance in the care of patients with HIV and is authored by an expert clinician who reviews the current literature and provides commentary. In the month following each newsletter, a case-based podcast discussion, like the one you've been listening to, 
brings that expert perspective to translating the new information into clinical practice. Continuing education credit for EHIV Review is jointly provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. For more information about EHIV Review, please go to our website, ehivreview.org. Welcome back to this EHIV Review podcast. We've been speaking with Dr. Ethel Weld, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Pharmacology, and Molecular Sciences at Johns Hopkins, about which two-drug art regimens may be most appropriate for which individuals. So, to continue our practice-based discussion, if you would please, doctor, bring us another patient scenario. Sure. So, let's talk about a 48-year-old gentleman with HIV that was diagnosed 15 years ago who presents for the first time to your clinic to transfer his care to you. It seems that all of his previous care was in Alaska, and you've had little success obtaining his records, his documentation of past antiretroviral regimens, or his past HIV genotypes. He himself does not recall what regimens he's been on in the past, and he's hazy on the details of his past course. He's currently taking boosted darunavir plus CAF and emtricitabine and is suppressed on this regimen. He's recently been diagnosed with allergic rhinitis, and he's taking fluticasone nasal spray, and he requires periodic bursts of systemic steroids for this. And he's requesting treatment simplification, a single tablet regimen, and is also concerned about his total lifetime burden of antiretroviral exposure. If possible, he would like to decrease this, as he knows that taking antiretrovirals is a lifetime commitment for him. So, here's a patient who's basically without history. He's virally suppressed, he wants to simplify his treatment, and he's concerned about total antiviral exposure. What are the key things a clinician needs to be aware of? So, first of all, with his current regimen and his co-administered meds and the periodic need for steroids, there would be a high concern for a serious drug-drug interaction wherein ritonavir and darunavir would boost systemic levels of his steroids even actually from the inhaled route, to the extent that iatrogenic Cushing syndrome or steroid hormone excess can occur. And therefore, if he truly needs the nasal spray, getting him off the boosted PI is a high priority. Or? Or choosing a steroid that based on its properties is less likely to cause interactions, such as beclomethasone. But generally speaking, the boosters, ritonavir and cobicistat, are to be avoided where drug-drug interactions are concerned. Of course, there is a single-tablet regimen which combines most of the elements in its current regimen. It's cobicistat, darunavir, TAF, plus emtricitabine, and that's combined into one pill that's now available, but it would have similar problems to the regimen that he's on, mostly related to drug-drug interactions with the cobicistat. So, in scenarios where you're considering a two-drug regimen, which he's really asking you to consider and talk through with him, but you cannot obtain adequate information on a patient's past regimens, resistance, past virologic failure, et cetera, some clinicians will perform an archived DNA genotype, which assesses for mutations in the cell-associated proviral HIV DNA. However, that comes with quite a lot of caveats. DNA proviral genotyping misses a lot of resistance in people with known mutations, so it lacks sensitivity, and it lacks specificity as well. It can detect mutations in non-propagating viruses that are not relevant to clinical care. And furthermore, the concordance between DNA and RNA genotypes is low. 
though it varies with different regimens. So you might not find any mutations that are lurking even if you send it. If you do find a mutation in the archive genotype, it is generally real. So if, for example, the archive genotype showed significant dolutegravir resistance, that would be management changing. For example, you would, in that case, avoid two drug regimens that have dolutegravir as a backbone. Integrase strand transfer inhibitor, insteam mutations. Are those something you might be concerned about? So the simple answer is no. Why not? He's not likely to have obtained mutations to the integrase strand transfer inhibitors if he's never seen these drugs. And just to review, Reltegravir first became available in 2007 and Elvitegravir in 2012, Dolutegravir in 2013. So... If he was on drugs before that time period, insta mutations would be unlikely. Transmitted resistance to these category of antiretrovirals is also uncommon, particularly 15 years ago when he was first diagnosed. But some clinicians would say, I have no information about past resistance. I won't believe the archive genotype if it is negative, and therefore I will pursue a conservative approach in this patient of standard triple therapy. So you could, in that case, switch to Bictegravir, Taf, Emtricitabine, which is a single tablet regimen, to get him off the boosted PI and minimize drug-drug interaction concerns as he heads into his 50s. Excellent point. I'd like to do a what-if with this patient. What if, all of a sudden, his medical records come in from Alaska? They show no evidence of HIV drug resistance on multiple genotypes over the past decade, and they show his past regimen was efavirenz plus TDF and emtricitabine, and that he went from that regimen to his current regimen of ritonavir-boosted darunavir plus TDF and emtricitabine. So having this history, does that change your management? So that's very helpful. Though he may have developed an occult K103N mutation in the setting of patchy adherence to his efavirenz-based regimen, the likelihood of this causing any problems for one of the licensed two-drug regimens is low. So, in other words, dolutegravir and rilpivirine resistance would not be expected from his treatment history, nor is it evident in his genotypic history. So, with this information, it is now reasonable to switch him to dolutegravir plus rilpivirine, which is an FDA-approved two-drug regimen for maintenance or to switch people who are already virally suppressed. And then the other option will be dolutegravir plus lamivudine, which again has the approval for treatment in the antiretroviral naive as initial treatment, but has indeed been studied as well for switch or maintenance. Just to avoid any confusion, if you would please, Dr. Weld, give us a quick review of the studies that investigated switch or maintenance therapy. So the studies that looked at this strategy for maintenance therapy were Lamidal and Aspire, which both had a sample size of about 100 participants and showed extremely high efficacy in the two-drug arm, and Tango, which was a much larger study of 741 individuals which had initial results presented at 48 weeks and showed 93% efficacy in the two-drug arm. The main point is that dolutegravir plus rilpivirine is a class A1 recommendation for a switch strategy, and dolutegravir plus 3TC is not recommended until further evidence is available. I want to also state that it's equally reasonable to continue him on three-drug therapy out of wariness surrounding his 
treatment experience and his past biologic failure, even without recorded resistance-associated mutations. So that would be the conservative strategy to weigh against the benefits from the perspective of cost, drug-drug interactions, comorbidities, and cumulative lifetime exposure to drugs. I want to thank you, Dr. Well, for sharing your insights and expertise in today's cases. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing how our learning objectives were addressed in today's discussion. So our first learning objective, using a two-drug regimen as initial therapy. What are the appropriate and inappropriate patients and circumstances? Dolutegravir plus lamivudine is an effective, safe, and durable regimen to be used as initial therapy in people who have HIV who have never received antiretrovirals before. In other words, are antiretroviral naive. It has mostly been studied in patients whose viral load initially is less than 500,000 copies per ml, and it will be important to understand how it rolls out in real-world use, especially among people whose viral load is above 500,000 copies at baseline. So the second point I would say is that the presence of the M184V mutation at baseline may or may not have adverse consequences for this two-drug regimen of dolutegravir plus lamivudine. So caution is likely warranted at this point, given the small sample size in the study that really looked at this regimen in people with this particular resistance-associated mutation. It's also important to mention that dolutegravir resistance is a contraindication to the use of a dolutegravir plus lamivudine two-drug regimen as it has not been studied in people with dolutegravir resistance. So that presence of that resistance-associated mutation that confers dolutegravir resistance would be a reason not to go with this two-drug therapy. But overall, some clinicians argue that really less is more when it comes to antiretroviral therapy in the era of increasingly potent drugs with high barriers to resistance, and that absent a compelling reason to be on three-drug therapy, all patients should be on two-drug regimens. So that represents one view within the HIV care community. And our second learning objective the use of a two-drug therapy as switch or maintenance therapy in appropriate patients and circumstances. The main point is that dolutegravir plus rilpivirine is an effective, safe, and durable regimen for the maintenance of viral suppression among patients who are already suppressed and are at a point of switching regimen for whatever reason, with the caveat that rilpivirine or dolutegravir resistance is felt to be a contraindication to this regimen. Treatment experienced patients who have a prior history of virologic failure can be at an increased risk of virologic failure on two-drug therapy regimens, so a careful history should be obtained prior to considering this. And the other thing to point out is that neither of the licensed dual therapy regimens would be appropriate for use as a maintenance strategy or initial strategy in people with concomitant HIV and chronic hepatitis B virus. Furthermore, at this point, there are limited data for using dual therapy regimens in pregnancy, and thus in this scenario, they should be avoided given that it's unclear whether they would have equivalent efficacy in prevention of maternal to child transmission of HIV. Two drug regimens should be used thoughtfully. All of them were tested in populations without significant treatment experience and with no significant resistance. 
And in people with high starting HIV viral loads, especially greater than 500,000, it is possible that caution is warranted pending further data on this population. And then there's no data on two-drug therapy as a rapid start regimen, though it is likely that it would work in settings with a very low prevalence of transmitted resistance to its component. Dr. Ethel Weld from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, thank you for participating in this EHIV Review Podcast. Bob, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. For EHIV Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ehivreview.org. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the EHIV Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME-CE credit, available online to clinicians treating patients with HIV. This activity has been developed for primary care physicians, NPs, PAs, nurses, HIV specialists, OBGYNs, infectious disease physicians, and others involved in the care of patients with HIV. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, through the joint providership of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register, please go to our website, ehivreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Science Incorporated and Vive Healthcare. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.